0: I'm Angelique Roche, and this is Marvel's Voices. I knew a little bit about Jesse Holland before we decided to bring him on Marvel's Voices in that he was a journalist, that he worked in DC, and that he was the guy who got to write the first novelization ever of Black Panther. The name of the book is Who is the Black Panther? It's based off of the first volume of Hudlin's Black Panther that came out in the 90s. One of the most exciting things about Jesse is that he has this energy about him. When you listen to him speak, when you see him talk, when you even read his work, there's this energy about knowledge and storytelling. I love the fact that Jesse not only has such rich experience in doing work that gives the perspective of people of color, but that he also has such an incredibly rich story. Coming from uh, a family of educators and farmers and living a life where he has seen so many different facets of culture and government and governance and even doing his work with the Washington Press Club Foundation and supporting people of color and women of color journalists. I just he has just such an incredible story, but also such a thirst for telling a story in a way where it's accessible to others. And I can't wait for you to listen to this episode because he has such a way of explaining why that's important. This is Jesse J. Holland's story.
1: I will be have been with AP for 25 years in May.
0: Wow. And
1: as of yesterday, um, it, yesterday was my five-year anniversary writing about race and ethnicity, which was the longest I've ever covered any one topic.
0: Okay, so let's have this conversation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because I think there's something so misunderstood mm-hmm. yet beautifully poignant about this concept of race and um, ethnicity. ethnicity. Yeah. Because being from the South, because I'm from Louisiana, you're from Mississippi. Right. And Memphis. And Memphis, yes. I want to make sure I would put both of those in there. You please do. <laughs> um, for those who don't necessarily have a frame of reference. Right. For race and ethnicity and why that would be a particular beat. Right. To have... Uh, what does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, when, especially when you're talking about uh, mainstream media, and I want to be specific to talk and say that we're talking about mainstream media, not the black press, which has its own system that's existed forever, going all the way back to Frederick Douglass and the North Star. So, the problem became that the mainstream media, and just to be specific, this is the media that's read by the the then white majority of the United States, they never covered minority communities. And they never cared to until the 1960s, Hmm. when they started hiring civil rights writers, which they called race writers. So, The beat started in the mainstream media when the northern newspapers, the New York Times, Boston Globe, started sending writers down to the South to cover the civil rights movement. These, quote unquote, race writers would go down to the South and cover the African-American civil rights movement and African-American communities related to the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so they they started hiring African-American reporters to cover the civil rights movement. Well, once the Civil Rights Movement ended, instead of becoming race writers, they became urban affairs writers. After a few years, the urban affairs writers began to realize that urban affairs meant more than just covering inner cities. Mm -hmm. So the title shifted, once again, back to uh, writers who cover race. But Hispanics are not a race. They're an ethnicity. And we don't, in this industry, we don't cover just African-Americans. We cover African-Americans, Latinos, Latinxs. Uh, we cover Asians. We cover Native Americans. I don't cover mm. just what African-Americans do. Now, I will tell you, that's my main focus because I'm so into African-American history.
0: Which is really interesting, right? Because you have this this amazing... Actually, two amazing novels that you've written, which we will talk about. Like, there is a cultural significance to both of those characters. Um, I know I love Black Panther, but I lost my mind when I saw Finn.
1: Finn. <laughs> um,
0: I want to let's let's go back to the beginning. Let's go right. back to the fact right. that you your mom is a teacher.
1: My mom was an English teacher, and
0: which explains a lot. Right. Um, <laughs> dad, Dad is a farmer. Mm-hmm. How does a little boy from Mississippi who grows up on a farm get into comic books?
1: Oh, well, you know what? My both of my parents, by the way, were teachers. My dad just farmed on the times in which he wasn't teaching.
0: It's a family thing. Exactly,
1: exactly. So when he retired, he went but he went into full-time farming, which is what he does now. But it was my dad that bought me my first comic book. Which was um, which was an incredible Hulk, so I, I clearly remember the the first whose
0: run was it though? We got to know. Yeah. Okay. Do you so remember?
1: I, I don't remember whose run it was, but I can tell you exactly what's on the cover. I can see these three books in my mind, even though I don't still own them, and I have to go back out and find them. It was the first three were the Avengers. This was a the cover of the book has a big uh, the head of the Scarlet Witch, and it says Seasons of the Witch. I have it. So that that a copy of Avengers the copy of the Hulk has the is it was a one-shot story where the Hulk is in the future and the cover has the Hulk and, facing off with a man with a ray gun in a purple space suit about to shoot him. These two books stick out in my mind. My dad wow bought me my I think that I had to be maybe around five six seven somewhere like that and so my dad started buying me comic books and I just thought he was a cool dad this is just something cool dads do you're so awesome dad and I didn't find out until last year that my dad collected comic books when he was young he had never mentioned that to me anytime in his life Uh, He was actually on a radio show that I'm listening to. We're doing a radio show from Holly Springs at Russ College in Holly Springs. And they didn't tell me my parents were going to be on this show. And my dad is on this show. And they asked me, where did I get my comic book Jones from? And I start telling this story. And my dad interrupts and says, well, you know, I had my own comic books because I started reading comic books when I was about that same age. And I'm like, so where are all these comic books that I've never seen? He's like, well, you know, I moved away and your grandmother told me to come get my comic books. I never quite got around to it. So my grandmother threw them all into an incinerator.
0: You know, here's the thing. I feel like I've heard this story so many times. So many times. Like we had, so Cheo Hadari Coker was in here uh, a couple months ago and he was talking about how his mom had given away his Millennium Falcon.
1: Oh my goodness. So when my mom called me and said, come get your comic books out of my house, I drove a U-Haul from DC to Mississippi and back. To ensure that my comic books will stay with me. My grandmother, I mean, think about this. My dad is about 80. Think about all of the first editions of everything he had if he started buying as a child. I
0: don't want to. It makes my soul hurt because I've been collecting the Avengers from 227 to 294 specifically on a mission. And we're going to double check. I want to double check and make sure that's the one because I may or may not have two copies of that um how do you feel comic books and these stories impacted you as a kid in your life like now you are a writer
1: right i'll be the first one to tell you that comic books was the the first thing i was obsessively reading as a child a lot of the a lot of the original reading. That I did came from Marvel and DC comic books I mean I love them if I sit and write a story now you can probably see the beginnings of my readings through how I tell a story because I learned short story writing through reading comic books it's the form I grew up reading
0: and it's it's sheer at its core it is a short story it,
1: I mean, it's short serialized storytelling where you have each issue contains a story but it continues in the next issue i was doing a career day at my uh, children's elementary school earlier this year and i was telling them how we had to read comic books as children imagine watching your favorite show on tv and realizing you had 30 days before you could see the next episode that's what comic books were like for me. I would read a copy of Avengers, and I had to wait 30 days to find out what happened next. That's actually how I got into writing, because I couldn't wait 30 days. So I started making up what what would happen next myself. That's how I got—I still have— some of the little sketches I did as a kid trying to figure out what the Avengers were going to do next, what was going to happen next in Fantastic Four, what Spider Man was really going to, how was he going to get out of this trap? I didn't know. And I couldn't wait. So I had to make it up myself and then be mm-hmm. disappointed that the authors didn't go with my ideas. <laughs> the <laughs> next month.
0: You're like, but what do you, that's not,
1: that's, that's not, not supposed to happen. That's not supposed to happen I, that way. What? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it, I credit. My reading of comic books to getting me started into writing itself, that impatience of wanting to know what happened next. Now, I tried drawing for a while, but quickly learned that that's not one of my skill sets.
0: Not everything is for everybody. It's cool. And I just kept writing. So why journalism and not novellas and novels? And why not...
1: That. well you know I I was one of those people who tried to do everything at all times so I ended up going to the University of Mississippi on a journalism scholarship hmm. I decided to get into journalism because I knew I wanted to write hmm. but being from a farm in Mississippi I thought I didn't have anything to write about So I figured the best way to meet interesting people, go interesting places, do interesting things, was to be a reporter. Because that way you get to talk to so many different people, you get to see so many different things, and they pay you to write about it. So I went to Ole Miss uh, and and got a journalism degree. But around my sophomore, junior year, the, the, the writing, writing bug hit me. So I also started working on an English degree. So I studied under Barry Hannah at, at Ole Miss. One of he was part of that famous clique of uh, Oxford writers: Barry Hannah, John Grisham, Donna Tart, Larry Brown, the whole clique of Oxford writers. So I started hanging out with them and started writing again, and actually started up my my very first published creative. Work was at Ole Miss. It was a daily comic strip that w- that ran in the Ole Miss newspaper called Hippie and the Black Guy," which was a co-written comic strip by myself um, to, and two of my friends, David Hitt and Lane Hughes. We and it was one of those weird things. I we started I started writing about race. Using entertainment in college. So you got
0: to explain Hippie and the Black. Okay, so
1: if anyone is interested, I can tell you the website where it still exists to this day. Boom, here we go. I don't know if I wanted this out there (laughs) because you go back and look at it now. And keep in mind, this was 1992.
0: That was a great year.
1: Let me explain it like this. So in 1993, I became editor of the newspaper at Ole Miss called the Daily Mississippian. Which was a big deal. Which was a big deal. Uh, I was only the second African-American editor of the newspaper. Well, the summer of my editorship when it began, I also got an internship at the New York Times. So I came up to Manhattan to work at the Times. Traditionally, the editor of the newspaper stays on campus during the summer to start putting together the fall, what the fall's paper is going to look like. So, when I get back to campus that semester, the paper's publisher has taken away every computer in the office of the Daily Mississippian. I'm sorry, what? He had taken, they were called video data terminals, VDTs, that I had worked on for three years. I get back to campus and they're all gone. And the next day after I get back, we get all brand new Macintoshes. (laughs) Well, the publisher said you have five days to network them and figure out how to put out a paper on a Macintosh. So one of the things that I decided to do with all this new equipment, all these great brand new Macintoshes, why are we paying for Garfield? Why are we paying for uh, the far side? We have all these creative people on campus. Why don't we give these people on campus a chance to show their stuff? And so I put out this call for cartoonists and I think we only had like two people, maybe three, because I I remember the names of the strips. One of the, the strips was called JIP, done by Nick Durga. The other one was called Tears for the Damned, which was a vampire gothic strip. These were, the, and the third was called Pumpkin Shirt, which was done by my friend Lane Hughes, who then went on to work on Hippie and a Black Guy with us. Yeah. So now, if you, anyone who doesn't know Ole Miss, even to this day, Ole Miss is considered like the liberal haven of Mississippi. That just means that it's really conservative instead of extremely conservative. At Ole Miss, there are cliques. No. You have the Greeks. You have the the Honor College. You have the athletes. And then you have everybody else. So if you weren't an athlete or a Greek, you could only be one of two things. That's either a hippie or a black guy. So I was not part of the Greek system. David and Lane were not part of the Greek system. So we came up with this concept where everyone in in the comic strip would be a stereotype. So the two protagonists were hippie and black guy. Basically, hippie was a combination of David and Lane and black guy was me. And everyone else in the comic strip would be a stereotype. You had sorority girl. You had frat guy. You had tenured professor. And we kept this comic strip going on for maybe maybe about five years. And it was the funniest thing because we didn't put our names on the comic strip because they couldn't fit. It's a small space. You couldn't put three full names. So we just said by J.D.L., Jesse David Lane. So nobody outside the newspaper knew who was doing this comic strip. So day one of the comic strip, the black student union comes to my office to protest that there's a comic strip in the paper called Hippie and the Black Guy. And so it was hilarious because I'm sitting there trying to – they're talking to me about how insulting this is. And I'm trying to figure out at what point do I stop them and say, you know, I'm writing this. And I just keep reading. You'll get it. Um, but it, that that doing that shit was just hilarious.
0: Speaking <laughs> of being good at something, though, one of the things I think that you have been lauded for is your ability to write – historical nonfiction in a narrative way. Did you feel like your plan for being a journalist mm-hmm. and getting this experience and doing these different things and meeting these different people and traveling to these different places paid off when you got to this point where it's like, oh, here we are, I get to tell the stories.
1: Right, well, it paid off for me uh, like hugely, big time, because one of the things that journalism teaches you is how to tell a story. Every newspaper article you've ever read, it's just a story. Believe me, there was a lot more that happened that that reporter isn't telling you, but they're picking out the things that they think will matter to you, and they're putting it in narrative form so you will actually read it. So being able to to learn a craft— like journalism, helped for me in two ways as a writer. A, it teaches you how to tell a story. B, it teaches you how to finish on deadline, which is a huge thing, being able to actually finish something.
0: And that's interesting to me because that makes me look at the 90,000 words that you use for the Black Panther novelization in a whole new light, because I'm trying to figure out what you did with the other 150,000 words you didn't put in the book.
1: Well, you know, that book was <laughs> cut down severely because it wasn't, they, because when I finished the first draft, it was, was somewhere around 150,000 words. And I just we, guessed that. I and, just want to be we, very we started, clear. And we started cutting it back down. Uh, but see, what I, what I do now, as well as journalism, is I take some of those skills I picked up finding the story, telling the story, and apply that to history, mm-hmm. especially African-American history. What I did with one of my books, which is called The Invisibles, the untold story of African-American slaves in the White House, there are a lot of facts out there about the presidents and the, the ones who owned their own slaves and the ones who brought them to Washington. There are a lot of facts about that but no one had bothered trying to take those facts and turning it into a story
0: because they all were sitting there in these individual pockets exactly. and it was never a priority for anyone to link together this narratives and i think that's that's so very similar to this idea of what we were talking about about Stan and Kirby's Black Panther versus Priest's Black Panther versus Hudlin's, Hudlin's Black, Black Panther. Panther right. Which Oh, good Lord, Hudlin's Black Panther. Yes. Um, because it was so vastly different to have a director mm-hmm. in the writer's chair for those books and also a true fan, right? Because right. at that point you go from having the creator like Stan and Jack to having a man who read it as a kid exactly. who now has his turn. Like, And you now have the writers like Hudlin and Narcisse and ta yep. who can go, okay, it's my turn. This is the way the story has to go. Right. And I say all that to say, your work in creating this larger narrative being the first time that Black Panther was ever novelized... It brought together those concepts, brought together these fundamentals in such a way where suddenly folks who had never read a comic book in their entire life could access something that, to be very clear, is extremely overwhelming with right. the history of Black Panther and the culture of Wakanda.
1: Well, so I have to share this with you. Um, I the, the novel actually was nominated for an NAACP Image Award yesterday, and Last night, I sent a note to Reginald Hudlin on Facebook because my novel, the, the backbone of my novel is that first run of his mm-hmm. in Marvel Comics, the Who is the Black Panther So, volume run. one. Volume one. That original run that I read, I bought, I owned, when I owned the original copies when it came out. I read that. And I sent a note to Reginald Hudlin saying, hey, once again, thank you for doing this because I wouldn't be here if I didn't have that... That original foundation that you had.
0: What was it about Reginald Hudlin's run, in particular, and what was it about Volume One? Because this, is just, right. this one is just Volume One. This is
1: just Volume One. Right. That
0: called to you because you've been reading. You've been reading since the '80s. So since you, the 80s, you've exactly. had a lo- you've had a long relationship mm-hmm. with T'Challa and Wakanda, and you've seen it go through, like, throughout the Marvel And, and, and limited universe. series
1: as well, yeah. Um, the Marvel Comics Presents series, the, uh, the, um, the Black Panther limited series where he fights the white supremacists in Africa, I, I own all of them. I've been reading them forever. But, you know, Hutland's work was the first time someone had really bothered to retell the origin and make it relevant now. From the beginning... The what Stanley and Jack Kirby. This is the, by the way, this is the brilliance of Stanley and Jack Kirby that they came up with an origin for Black Panther that stuck from the '60s all the way to Reginald Hudlin. It was so powerful. T'Challa, the the character, the archetype of T'Challa was so powerful. No one touched what they did.
0: It was so powerful that when I first read it, I could hear it. As he's telling his story in my ears.
1: Exactly. So Reginald Hudden really is the first time someone looked at that original story and said, let's modernize it. Let's turn it into something where we understand right now what's going on, because if you look at the original story from from uh, nineteen sixty six and Fantastic Four, T'Challa's smoking a cigarette. I mean, th- these are things that we know that it was would, very
0: culturally significant, was, not necessarily culturally
1: modern. We'll yes. say we'll say modern. So Reggie took this character, took this grand archetype that Stanley and, and Jack Kirby came up with, and he kept the best parts and modernized the rest. He didn't change it. T'Challa all of a sudden is not bitten by a a radioactive panther. He didn't just rewrite
0: it. You know somebody put that down on a whiteboard once upon a time and they felt like that was the answer to everything.
1: (laughs) But he takes that story and it turns into this incredible mythology that yeah. we see, that we recognize the T'Challa from 1966, but we also recognize what the young T'Challa going through in the 90s because Hudlin made it relevant. But so it was just but
0: incredible. But that's Hudlin's perspective. That's Hudlin's eye. Like my hat trick is like, so you know he directed House Party, right? Like, <laughs> like you always have to be like that was so 90s, and so it, that that made it a
1: great launching point. For the novel, mm-hmm. because I could then take what Hudland did and then rewrite it for 2017. Just don't don't change any of the major ideas, because I think that the Hudland origin will also last for another mm-hmm. 50 years. Take that idea and take the best parts of what Stan and Jack did, take some of the work that Don McGregor did, take some of the work that Priest did, and combine it all into one narrative for people who've never read a comic book.
0: Or never will read a comic book.
1: And so th- th- that was my mission in my head. My goal with Black Panther novel was to Take the people who are walking through a bookstore, ignored the comic book carousel, but heard about Black Panther and want to know who this character is. Be able to explain this character in prose to people So they understand why we're so obsessive about this character. And then they can go see a a movie about this character. And T'Challa is the same in the novel as he is in the movie as he is in the comic book. That's how powerful that character is.
0: Wow. So what's next?
1: (laughs) What's next? That's always the question. Um, I'm working on several things right now. Um, In May, I I will have been with the Associated Press for 25 years. I'm still on my first job. I joined the Associated Press as an intern out of college in 1994 in Columbia, South Carolina. I will hit my 25th anniversary in May. Uh, As of, I think, maybe a couple days ago, um, I hit my fifth anniversary writing about race and ethnicity at the Associated Press. It's the longest I've ever written about one topic. At the AP, but I'm, but as long as you're having fun, you keep doing it. Uh, I also host Washington Journal on C-SPAN on Saturdays, so I'll, I'll, I, I'm learning television as well, and I teach creative nonfiction at Goucher college in Baltimore. So I have students that I'm, I'm teaching the, the craft of creative nonfiction, which is basically once again, it's the same thing we've been talking about is taking these real life events that happen and telling an engaging story out of it. It's, it's, and it's amazing uh, the, the stories you get to read and the stories the students bring in. this is not just uh, writing about history like I do, but it's also memoir. It's also science. It's also true crime. It's also legal. You can do you, and I'm just learning that it also can be poetry. You can have not creative nonfiction poetry. So it, you have all of these great forms of creative nonfiction that we're getting we're, that we're teaching, and we're now moving into digital. I taught a digital nonfiction class for the first time last semester, which was about podcasting. So you, get, you, you have all of these different forms of creative nonfiction that you can take and you can teach and you can expand the knowledge of the world. I mean, at, at, at its heart, creative nonfiction is informing people about re- true life things in a way they can't ignore that's what creative nonfiction is. So I, I teach that at Goucher College in Towson, Maryland, which is always it's a program I graduated from. So it's it's a fabulous program. I am also working on a couple of other projects. I'm hopefully sometime this year I will be able to announce my first independent novel. Oh. So cross your fingers. It's about it's about finding that time in the day to get this stuff done.
0: I don't know how you find the time of the day to get the things done that you have (laughs) listed out on this podcast.
1: Well, you know, this is why, you know, I don't sleep. (laughs) I sleep, uh, because in in all of this as well, you have to have the balance of a family life. Uh, You have to pay attention to your wife. My wife, Carol, has been extremely supportive of all of these 15 million things I'm trying to do at the same time.
0: I see you shouting out, Carol. I I, I see you. (laughs)
1: And uh, Rita and Jamie are two absolutely fabulous kids, and I and I spend as much time as I can with them.
0: I love it. I love it. So we got a little bit of a quick fire question section. Oh, okay. All right. All right. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, telepathy. What is your superpower?
1: Um, not sleeping.
0: <laughs> what is your favorite comic book?
1: Um, My favorite comic book, of course, is Black Panther, Um, but I started out before Black Panther, before getting into Black Panther, I started out as a huge Avengers fan.
0: Love it. What does your current playlist look like?
1: Uh, Right now, I am listening to the uh, Into the Spider-Verse soundtrack, which is absolutely fabulous. It's on repeat in my truck every morning as I drive drive my kids to the bus stop. They're sick of it, but we're going to listen to it until I find something better, which I can't see happening anytime soon.
0: Better Black Panther, Shuri or T'Challa?
1: Oh, Shuri. No two ways around that. I love T'Challa. And I will tell you one of the first when I turned in the first draft of my Black Panther novel, one of the notes I- on the top of the book was: "This is about T'Challa, not Shuri, right?" Because <laughs> I- there was so much Shuri in my t- t- my novel that's supposed to be about T'Challa, that I had to go back and actually put more T'Challa in it. <laughs>
0: So you're clearly reading Nnedi Okorfor's. Clearly. So good. Clearly. So good.
1: Oh, uh, My editors at Marvel and the Marvel novel will tell you that the second I finished it, I said, now, if you want a Shuri novel, please understand that I'm raising my hand right now. Because Shuri is the mom. Shuri. One of the um, most amazing things is that. It might actually have been better for Wakanda if T'Challa had never taken back the Black Panther habit and that Shuri had stayed queen because... You
0: can add Jesse Holland on this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because as much as I love T'Challa, T'Challa is, as a writer, T'Challa's problem is that he's almost perfect. So it's really hard... To as a writer to write faults into T'Challa,
0: but isn't his fault that he is almost perfect and that he can't get out of his own way?
1: You know the the conf- there, There's a confrontation between uh, T'Challa and the Blue Marvel in a copy of of the Mighty Avengers.
0: Oh, Doctor Bashir.
1: That I that I I I pulled that book and I keep that book because. He, Uh, Dr. Bashir explains for the first time, I think, I haven't seen it in too many Marvel comic books, T'Challa's problem. T'Challa's problem is that he's king. He's used to everyone doing what he says, either because he's king or he's the smartest guy in the room. But what if he's wrong? There's nobody to tell him no. The only person who can actually tell him no is Bast. Everybody else, he can either buy his way out of it he can think his way out of it or he can fight his way out of it. There's not too many people at his level, but the few rare times that he's wrong, who he's, can tell him that? But he's so wrong when he's wrong. But he's the, the, the so greater the wrong. mind, the greater the fault, the few times that he has it. So, I, and I think this was about the Illuminati that Bashir, Dr. Bashir and T'Challa are talking about the whole idea of the Illuminati. Even though, keep in mind, T'Challa was against it from the beginning, but he did
0: participate eventually. For the folks that are listening, where can they <laughs> find this particular storyline?
1: It's in the, I think it's in Al Ewing's Mighty Avengers run. I think that's where it is. I pulled that comic book because when you're writing T'Challa, you have to. I mean, so for an engaging story, a hero has to have a fault. You can't have a perfect hero. But it's really hard to find that fault with T'Challa. But T'Challa, I think, is actually the perfect combination between Reed Richards and Dr. Doom. He, he's the king, the scientist, but he's also the smartest as well. You put those two guys together, I think you get T'Challa, where you have all of this, the resources of a country.
0: All right. So last question. What does storytelling mean to you?
1: What does storytelling mean to me? Okay. So storytelling for me is a way to answer questions that I have in a way that other people can understand what I'm talking about and be entertained at the same time. Uh, For example, when I wrote about the African-American slaves in the White House, that literally was a question I had. Who were these people and why doesn't anyone know about them? So that book is the answer to those questions where that answer to the question that I had in a way that I think other people can really read and understand who these people are. With the Black Panther novel, I mean, literally, it's on the cover. Who is the Black Panther? That is the that is the question that I'm trying to answer for a world that at that point didn't know who he was. So we were introducing, we were the first introduction to the Black Panther for a lot of people outside of the comic book world. You had Reg, Reggie Hudlin's uh, um, comic series on BET and you had the comic book. Before the movie, those were the only two areas where you could see the Black Panther. So... My goal was to introduce this extremely cool character to the rest of the world. And the question was, literally, who, who is the Black Panther? And so I'm asking that question, and I'm answering that question in a way where I can introduce this character that I love to the rest of the world. So storytelling for me is about finding a question that you want to answer— and answering it in a way that other people will enjoy and remember that answer.
0: I don't think there's a better way to end this uh, this interview. This is great. Well, thank you. This is fantastic.
1: I want to be sure to say that um, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, and you can always go to my website, which is www.jessiejholland.com, to get more announcements on the things that I'm doing. Once again, I hope to have this really great announcement coming out really soon. Black Panther is my jam, and I'm going to stay in that area as absolutely long as I can. So keep your eyes open for that next great thing.
0: Dope. I love seeing people excited, so... It's,
1: re- it's really different being on this side of the microphone. Usually I'm over there
0: uh-huh. asking the question. Oh, yeah. I hate being on your side. <laughs> it's, been, it's been such a Thank you so much to Jesse for stopping by the Marvel offices and having this incredible conversation with me. But also, congratulations on the nomination for the NAACP Image Award. That is bonkers and amazing and well-deserved. Thanks so much for listening to Marvel's Voices, and we'll see you next time.